from the Center for European Reform. This is the CER podcast. Posons-nous sérieusement la question de l'avenir que nous voulons et ayons tous ensemble le courage de le construire. Für uns in Deutschland ist das Bekenntnis zum vereinten Europa Teil unserer Staatsräson. A strong united Europe is a necessity for the world because an integrated Europe remains vital to our international order. This is the moment for Europe to lead the way towards a new vitality. Hello and welcome to the latest podcast from the Centre for European Reform. I'm Ian Bond, the CER's Director of Foreign Policy. This is going to be an unusual podcast for the CER in that a lot of it will be devoted to history rather than contemporary events. We're going to be talking about the history of the 1991 Soviet coup attempt because the, the effects of this short-lived and in some respects quite farcical putsch still reverberate today. I'm delighted to have the chance to discuss what happened and why and what the long-term impact has been with two great experts. Uh, Igor Jurgens, who's now the chairman of the board of management of the Institute for Contemporary Development in Moscow, and at the time was a senior official in the um, Soviet Union's trade union organization, and Angela Stent, Professor Emerita at Georgetown University in Washington, D.C., and Director of the Center for Eurasian, Russian, and East European Studies there, who was um, already at Georgetown, uh, had been at Georgetown for some time in 1991 when these events unfolded. So, I, I mean, to set the scene briefly, Mikhail Gorbachev had been the Soviet leader since March 1985, um, I remember him taking over from the incredibly decrepit and constantly ill Konstantin Cherenenko at that time. Um, and Gorbachev was first the general secretary of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union, and then the president of the, the Soviet Union, indirectly elected by the Congress of People's Deputies, the, the parliament. And he was appointed after um, a run of increasingly old and infirm general secretaries at a time when the Soviet system was starting to struggle economically. And he came in really with the task and he set about the task of trying to reform the system to make the Soviet Union work better. And in the process of doing that, he effectively brought the Cold War to an end. In the effort of trying to reduce the, the burden of military spending on Soviet forces and the subsidies that the Soviet Union was paying to its Warsaw Pact allies in Central and Eastern Europe, uh, he, he cut armed forces, he agreed far-reaching arms control deals with the West, he allowed the, the countries of Central and Eastern Europe to transition to democracy, and perhaps most importantly, he didn't send in Soviet forces when the Berlin Wall came down, and he allowed the peaceful reunification of, of Germany. Now, as a result of that, he was enormously popular in the, in the West. But back home, his reforms were not producing the, the hoped-for results. And so if we move to the afternoon of August the 18th, 1991, uh, a group of senior Soviet officials turned up in um, in Foros in Crimea, where Gorbachev was on holiday, um, and 
basically invited him to step down while they took over. Um, they um, named themselves the State Committee for the State of Emergency. They were led by the head of the KGB, Vladimir Kruchkov. And in essence, this was a coup d'etat trying to reverse the, the reforms that Gorbachev had been pursuing. So, Igor, you, you were in Moscow. I mean, what, what did people think about Gorbachev by this stage? And how did they react when they woke up on the morning of the 19th of, of uh, August and um, heard the announcement that this um, committee, uh, known, known by its uh, Russian acronym as the GKCP, had, um, had seized power? What, what did people do at that point? Well, first of all, it was uh, <clears throat> at the middle of the holiday season, so not so many people, pretty relaxed. As far as Gorbachev is, was concerned, I mean, his reputation, by that time, out of the very resolute uh, democratic leader, he already became a, a weak figure. And uh, you mentioned the economic side of it. That's true. Reforms were, were, were not as resolute they were not as drastic and concrete as one would expect them to be, and no results almost, no privatization, no, nothing of the kind. Huh? Just to talk about the uh, efficiency of the socialist production. But most important, by that time, we had already the collapse of the Soviet Union, if you, if you wish. Uh, it started with Nagorno-Karabakh when Azerbaijan and Armenia started to fight severely, seriously, with lots of... Uh, uh, victims and uh, uh, Soviet troops coming in. Georgia was on fire even before that. Uh, young, man, uh, young people manifested against uh, the Soviet rule. And all three republics of uh, Baltic, Baltic states, they already declared their independence. And Russian leader Boris Yeltsin accepted that. As independence of the Baltic states. So, uh, by the by the 19th of August 1991, for many it was not a surprise that something might happen or should happen. If you talk about the the spirit, uh, the the attitude of the people, I would say they were divided uh, more or less in the same proportion as today. I would say 70% of the people were very eager to have a iron fist of Mr. Stalin or something like that. And 30% who aspired for more freedom, for more democracy, for uh, Western orientation, uh, they were, of course, uh, very much in favor of Gorbachev to stay, but to be much more resolute and much more energetic in his position. Uh, my own uh, situation was the following. I was the acting chief of the All-Union Central Council of Trade Unions, which was the third uh, most influential organization of this, of the Central Committee of the party and the government. And as such, I had the access to the so-called ATS-1, which is the telephone connection with, with the Kremlin. Mr. Yunaev, who officially was the chairman of GKCP, which you mentioned, Vice President of uh, Soviet Union, was in my position only two years before that. And he was my boss. And he was, uh, I would say, a, a person with whom I had excellent re personal relations. 
So uh, August 19th at around 11 o'clock in the morning, I called him on this secret uh, protected line uh, and asked him, Gennady Ivanovich, what's going on? Because the official line was that Gorbachev fell ill and cannot, cannot deliver. Uh, so I asked him for some kind of a confirmation because I was talking, not in my personal capacity, but on behalf of that time, a hundred million people unionized in the Soviet Union. Uh, so he said, Igor, don't you worry. In a couple hours time, you'll understand everything. Michael is fully aware of what's going on. Mikhail Sergei. Okay, I waited for a couple hours. There was uh, thousands of calls from all the republics and, and different institutions. I waited for another couple hours. I called it the second time. It was, uh, I think, uh, around four o'clock. Uh, Mr. Yanayev more or less repeated the same thing. Igor, uh, don't you worry. Uh, Gorbachev is safe and sound. He knows what we are doing. Uh, you will uh, you'll get the clear message in a couple hours time. I told him, Gennady Ivanovich, I cannot carry on much longer because the reputation of the organization is at stake and many people are very much worried about the president. So uh, next morning we issued a, a statement. It was called a statement of this all union central council of trade unions saying that unless we hear from Mr. Gorbachev on television, by radio, his voice saying that he is ill. Uh, we think that what's going on is unconstitutional and cannot be supported by us. At that time, we already had a uh, connection, a contact with the, what was called a Russian Union of uh, Industrialists and Entrepreneurs led by Mr. Volsky and the chairman of one of the committees of the uh, of our parliament, Mr. Primakov. So Volsky, Primakov and us joined in the statement saying that we need clarification, otherwise we think it's unconstitutional. Right. So that, that was about it. But just to finish with this part, I can tell you that, uh, first of all, the majority of Russian or Soviet people were not against GKHP. Only about 30% of young, intelligent, uh, uh, well-educated were much more in favor of Gorbachev than, than, than of even Yeltsin. And uh, that's point number one. And second point, that was not great surprise because the Soviet Union by that time was disintegrating already. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's that's interesting. And we'll we'll come on to Yeltsin in, in a moment. But Angela, I wanted to, to turn to you. Um, I mean, you know, Georgetown, a great center of expertise in in Washington. Um, George H.W. Bush had succeeded Ronald Reagan as president in January 1991. Um, he paid his first visit to Moscow at the end of July and then gone on to, to Kiev. Um, I, I wonder, I mean, first of all, I don't know whether you or any of your colleagues were involved in the kind of briefing process before those uh, those visits and and what Bush's uh, objectives were on his on his visit. And 
did you get any any sense of whether you know anyone came back from Moscow and Kiev saying, "Wow, this is looking really fragile. I wonder if Gorbachev will still be here in a in a couple of months' time." When when um, the the putschists made their broadcast saying that Gorbachev was ill and they were in charge, how much of a surprise was it in Washington? Well, I think the Bush administration, like its predecessor, uh, the Reagan administration, had been working with Gorbachev. Obviously, uh, uh, Bush, both as a vice president and now as president, had gotten to know Gorbachev well. Um, there was, uh, you know, there was a very good relationship had been between Foreign Minister Shevardnadze, uh, Secretary of State, uh, then James Baker. So there were there were, were close ties to that Soviet government, and in fact. Uh, President Bush went to Moscow just at the end of July, a couple of weeks before the coup, to sign START One, which was a major arms control agreement, the first one between the Soviet Union and the United States had actually cut back um, on the numbers of nuclear weapons. Previous ones had just frozen them. So this was a great opportunity. He went there. He apparently had um, you know, good discussions with President Gorbachev. I think we have to remember the timing of the coup was related to um, this new treaty that yes. Gorbachev wanted to sign with the different republics um, of the Soviet Union to kind of create a more devolved framework of the relationship between the Soviet republics and Moscow, sort of to keep the country together. Um, and in fact, you know, after the Soviet Union collapsed, Gorbachev, when Gorbachev was asked when he came to the US, what was your biggest mistake? And he said, I underestimated the nationalities question which is, I think, an understatement. So this was in the background with this impending desire by the Gorbachev um, administration to keep the country together. So Bush had good meetings with Gorbachev and then uh, Yeltsin wanted to meet with President Bush and he indeed, indeed did. And what he said to President Bush was he wanted the United States to establish diplomatic relations with the Russian Federation, of which Yeltsin was now president, as well as the Soviet Union. I think Bush was very put off by this. Now, the second uh, part of this trip to the Soviet Union then happened in Kiev, and President Bush went to Kiev, and he made a rather controversial speech, um, which was dubbed by uh, President Nixon's former speechwriter, William Sapphire, as Chicken Kiev. And he stood up and he basically said to the Ukrainians, um, that they shouldn't pursue what he called suicidal nationalism. In other words, he was telling the Ukrainians, don't try and become independent. You should all work together in the Soviet Union. And of course, that message was not very well received in Kiev. So, um, so that was his trip. But I think we just have to remember that, um, again, the, 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 the White House, um, I mean, we can talk more about Yeltsin, I think, later on, had a rather dim view of Boris Yeltsin. Uh, and they very much respected Gorbachev. They wanted to work with him. And in fact, when the coup occurred, when James Baker was awoken in the middle of the night um, and was told about this coup, President Bush was in Kennebunkport, the, um, the family home in Maine. Uh, Baker himself jotted down some notes and said, we have to figure out how to work with this new government. So, you know, they were not immediately um, averse to um, working with the government. And apparently the CIA at that point said there was a 45% chance that the coup would succeed uh, and a 45% chance that somehow the coup plotters, if you like, would work with other, other people within 
the Gorbachev structures, and nobody, I will point out in the US at least, and even in the intelligence community, or very few people could barely contemplate that the Soviet Union might collapse. I mean, they realized there were all these problems and tensions um, with the different republics, uh, but everyone was very focused still on Gorbachev. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's a really important point, and it's one that, uh, that very much echoes the experience that I had as a very junior um, diplomat in, in London, um, that, uh, you know, we, we had a real blind spot about the nationalities issue. Um, mm -hmm. I remember in 1985 uh, being sent off to a, a NATO meeting that was discussing um, the prospects for, for the Soviet Union. And um, the NATO, someone in NATO had prepared a paper which referred to the nationalities question. Um, and I was told, you know, oh, this is all nonsense. Um, there isn't a nationalities question in the Soviet Union. Um, so, you know, that really, that's, there's a strong echo there, I guess. Um, but it sounds as though, you know, they really had no idea when, when Bush came back from, uh, from that trip um, that, uh, you know, just a few weeks later, there was, there was uh, going to be a, a coup against Gorbachev. So, uh, you know, a, a big failure of, of foresight and, um, and intelligence there on, on all sides. Clearly, it took Gorbachev by, as much by surprise as it did the, the West. So perhaps we shouldn't mm -hmm. beat ourselves up too much. Now, I mean, Igor, the man who reacted quickly was Boris Yeltsin. Um, he, unlike Gorbachev, he had a direct democratic mandate because he had been elected as the president of the Russian Soviet Federative Socialist Republic by popular vote. And perhaps even more importantly, um, and, and an instance of the, the incompetence of the, the plotters, um, was that Yeltsin was in Moscow and not under arrest. Um, and he was able to go to his office in the, the Russian White House. And, and to begin with, um, he called for a return to normal constitutional development. Um, he wrote uh, an appeal to the US and the UN for the restoration of Gorbachev, or, that, or for them to support the restoration of Gorbachev. Um, he stood on top, of, on top of a tank and he stood up to the plotters, which took considerable courage and, and produced some of the iconic pictures of this, uh, this period. But um, in the aftermath of the coup, he effectively seized the power that was dropped by the GKCP um, before Gorbachev had a chance to, to retrieve it himself. And effectively, he transferred power from the Soviet authorities to the Russian authorities. And, and one of the things that I'm fascinated by is, how did that happen? I mean, how, in effect, did Yeltsin become the leader of a successful second coup by defeating the, the first? And did the people who were with Yeltsin you know, have a plan for this? Or was it just something that happened while Gorbachev was locked up in, in Crimea and before he could get back to the Kremlin uh, on the, where are we, the 22nd, I guess, was it, when he got back to the Kremlin? As I told you, 
everything was prepared for this by the economic developments of the, of the Soviet Union. Uh, the Soviet Union was collapsing um, because of the, uh, I would say, 35% of the GDP went to the defense, to the uh, war industrial complex, and up to 90% of R&D, research and development expenditure, was uh, military-oriented. Uh, so the Soviet Union simply collapsed under this burden of the excessive military uh, expenditure, and uh, Afghanistan and other problems around the socialist, so-called socialist bloc, including uh, Valencia, Poland, and, and all of that created the situation unbearable for the economic machine, plus the, uh, the national problems which you mentioned. So when Yeltsin, uh, Yeltsin was not arrested, uh, alongside with Popov, who was a very uh, charismatic uh, mayor of Moscow, where everything happened, so they decided that something's going wrong with the people who wanted to arrest us, or at least uh, needed to arrest us. So they went around the so-called White House in Moscow, which was the headquarters of the Russian government, not the Soviet one. And then those 30% of the population, which I mentioned as pro-democratic, young people, intelligentsia, academics, they rushed to this White House and uh, this uh, peaceful, peaceful resistance grew up and uh, the GKCP collapsed and the most charismatic leader was Mr. Yeltsin by, by default. Uh, I want to reconfirm what uh, Angela said. Uh, later in, in my career, I talked many times with Brent Scowcroft and with Charles Powell. Both were close, one to Margaret Thatcher, another one to, to George Bush. Uh, both told me that uh, Thatcher and Bush were trying to make a deal between Gorbachev and Yeltsin. They tried to talk them into peaceful coexistence, so to say. But GKCP made it almost impossible because they made uh, Boris Yeltsin democratically elected uh, leader and Gorbachev a lame duck. This, uh, this lame duck status uh, showed to Ukrainians, Belarusians, Kazakhs, uh, forget about the uh, Baltic states, which already were on, on, on the way out, that uh, we are disintegrating, so let's make a deal uh, of some kind of a disintegration. And from this point of view, Yeltsin was much more energetic, a bold face, put it this, this way, uh, and charismatic. And by that time, uh, the, the army, the, 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 uh, the KGB, what's left of it, uh, said, uh, 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 prayed uh, to, the, to the Russian flag, and that was the end of it. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, that's, it's, it's quite interesting. I mean, you, you talk about um, Yeltsin's charisma, and that clearly was an important factor. Um, did did Gorbachev um, make a, a big error in, uh, of judgment in, in not sort of going straight to the streets and to the people when he flew back from from Crimea. I mean, I understand, you know, he must have been mentally and physically exhausted, but, the you know, there seemed to be a kind of crucial period where Yeltsin was engaging with the people on the streets and Gorbachev went back to the Kremlin and, you know, almost 
back to normal normal work, as it were. I mean, was that a big mistake on his part, do you think? That was a genetic uh, development because one was a, a Maverick in the Communist Party, a man who already uh, declared the communist idea is a, a dead idea. Uh, and uh, uh, the advisors of Yeltsin were young, energetic people who decided that the country should go forward. Some of them were not so kosher, put it this way. They later became uh, very rich and uh, uh, not so patriotic as they claimed to be. People around Gorbachev were trained in this uh, hierarchy of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union, which was almost already not communist, but this power structure. Yeah. And being uh, Soviet aristocrats, they were sort of, uh, you know, hesitant on going to the crowd, on talking the populist demagoguery language they despised and all of that stuff. So being in the white gloves doesn't help in the revolution. Mm. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, Angela, what, um, what Igor just said about, uh, you know, his contacts with Charles Pohl and, and Brent Scowcroft and so on. Um, I mean, that that rings a bell with me. I mean, you know, London was was a lot more comfortable with Gorbachev than with Yeltsin. And I guess that was probably the same in, in Washington. So, uh, I mean, did you get any sense of how, how you know, how much um, official Washington felt it knew about um, Yeltsin and how worried were, were they about what Yeltsin might do with the, the, the influence that he'd acquired over the, the period of the coup? So in 1989, um, Yeltsin had made his first visit to Washington. And um, I would say the impression he left, uh, particularly on people you know, in, the, in the administration, was uh, sort of decidedly mixed. Um, uh, he, um, you know, he was erratic. Um, he demanded uh, meetings with the president, um, which he at that point really wasn't um, entitled to have, given his position. Um, they had to cancel some events. I remember I was supposed to go and listen to a speech because he was indisposed. And uh, James Baker himself um, noted in his notes when he first met him, he was, quote, a flake. But having said that, there was a division as time went on, and particularly by 1991, there was a division within the Bush administration about whether one should be dealing with Yeltsin or not. So President Bush himself, Baker, General Scowcroft, they all very much wanted to continue working with Gorbachev, and they kind of discounted the possibility of, of some kind of breakup. Then Dick Cheney, um, who um, you know, was quite influential, Robert Gates, as well, these were figures who had a different view and said that Yeltsin was really, this was the man of the future. And instead of um, banking on Gorbachev, who was clearly losing his grip on power, uh, the US should deal with Yeltsin. So there were debates about this, um, but I would say, you know, from the point of view of the White House at that time, right after the coup, um, they certainly wanted to continue working with Gorbachev. Um, and now having said that, um, Andrei Kozarev, who was then the foreign minister of the Russian Soviet Republic, later became uh, a foreign minister after the Soviet collapse. He came out to the West. He came out to Europe during all of this. He, and he met with uh, very senior US officials. And so there was then the beginnings of more contact. But I think until the very end, you know, nobody, want, in, no major figure in the West 
or no major Western leader wanted the Soviet Union to collapse. Um, they feared what would happen afterwards. They had the example of Yugoslavia that was already disintegrating at that point with the violence. And they, they, they didn't understand what would happen if you, know, you had an independent Ukraine and an independent Russia with these countries go to war with each other, what would happen? So there was great concern about the possibility of a collapse and therefore very much focusing on trying to help Gorbachev stay in power. But obviously as the year then wore on, um, there was a realization that maybe that was going to be too difficult and a gradually more of a dealing with Boris Yeltsin. But I would say reluctantly on the point, from the point of view of many of the people in the Bush administration. Yeah, yeah. Well, that leads neatly into the question of the, the aftermath. I mean, Igor, you had this sort of, this period of what, about four months um, between the coup and the the legal termination of the the Soviet Union and the transfer of power in Moscow from the Soviet to the Russian authorities, I mean, what what was that like to to live through? Did it make any difference to people's everyday lives? Did people feel that they were losing something important, or? or um, you know, was that not how people by this stage sensed it? I mean, when when um, Yeltsin and uh, Kravchuk and Shushkevich went off to Bielovieja Pushcha, uh, what what was it? You know, how did people feel as this was all happening? Well, first of all, in the upper structure of our elitist forces in Moscow, it was pretty brutal because. Immediately after GKCP, not only uh, the members of this clique were imprisoned, uh, but the uh, cleansing process started. There were all kind of questioning: uh, Why did you support, or uh, why did you, why, why were not so active in resisting, and, and so on and so forth? Okay, uh, so sometimes people were just uh, scoring personal scores between each other using this situation. And it was pretty brutal. And people in the uh, ministries, the agencies, they started understanding that the uh, Russian uh, government will swipe them out, will throw them out, uh, no matter what, because they were Soviet and uh, Russians and Moscovites will be the, 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 the game changers. So, but going one layer down to, to the everyday life of ordinary people, I would say that uh, the proportion which I mentioned to you uh, already, 70% of uh, normal Soviet citizens were very much concerned that their motherland is being thrown out, being stolen from them. I, I, I saw a lot of very decent people who cried when the mob were turning down the monuments to to Lenin, Sverdlov, Dzerzhinsky, all of that stuff. So this collapse was pretty brutal. And some of the forces on the democratic side, they were, you know, just hooligans too, huh? because the, those people always look for trouble. Uh, so then, as you said, four months was a long time. And uh, the resistance to the cruelty and the uh, combination of democratic forces uh, joining ranks with decent economists, uh, some uh, experts from the West 
saying where to go from there now was very much in the making. So uh, we started receiving some aid, even us in the trade unions from the West. Then later, uh, we decided that we should establish the relationship with those who were considered to be uh, hostile to the Soviet Union. And in fact, they were not. They were just simply the people from the different economic system and so on and so forth. So I would say by December 1991, when uh, Mr. Gorbachev stepped down, more or less, the power structure was uh, reestablished. It was very difficult economically. Nothing uh, happened uh, by that time in terms of the serious economic reform, which only Chubais and Gaida introduced a little bit later. It was uh, a terrible chaos on, on the market, but the sense and the feeling that freedom is better than non-freedom was already gaining. Mm. Mm. Yeah, okay, now that's, that's really interesting. Um, I mean, that, that leads me to, you know, as it were, our next dramatis personae, who we have not um, uh, really um, uh, talked about, because he played no, no significant part in any of this, and that's Vladimir Putin. Angela, you, you've written about Putin and his worldview. Um, and I wonder how much of, of that was shaped by what he saw around this time. I mean, as I recall, um, by the time of the coup, he was already deputy mayor of St. Petersburg with responsibility for foreign economic relations, presumably still reporting to the, the KGB um, and, and dealing with what was already a very difficult economic situation and supply situation in the, in the city. So what, if anything, do we know um, about his activities around this time and about um, his response to um, to the events in Moscow. So I think we have to remember that um, President Putin missed the entire Gorbachev period of perestroika uh, because he was in East Germany in Dresden um, as a KGB case officer. What he did experience when he was in the GDR was after the war came down was the mob descending on the headquarters of the KGB there uh, and demanding to see their files and. Um, his account in uh, the, an autobiographical series of essays published when he first became president, um, it's the account of him and his colleagues burning all the files they could um, uh, in their offices. And in fact, the furnace blew up. Uh, and so the, this experience of the mob attacking them, I think he had a visceral reaction to, as would anyone. Uh, and so then, of course, as you said, um, he returned from the GDR. He had lost his position. He was in St. Petersburg. He then uh, did have the position of the, of the deputy mayor responsible for foreign economic contacts. Um, I've never seen uh, very much that he said, at least in public, about his reaction to what happened then. Uh, maybe Igor knows more about that. But what you can say is, first of all, again, uh, when he, you know, looking at the KGB, right, the organization to which he had devoted his life until then, um, he must have, uh, you know, been uh, astounded by the incompetence of the coup plotters uh, because they, as, as Igor said, they didn't even arrest Boris Yeltsin. I mean, the first rule that they should have done at least would have been he was running around uh, free would have been to arrest him and make sure that he couldn't pose as a, you know, as an alternative form of power. So the idea that you had to have a KGB that was more competent, at least um, in, in the leadership. And then again, um, the mob. 
So, you know, the people went out in the streets, uh, uh, Yeltsin went up on the tank. There was this popular um, uh, outcry then, and then um, finally the, the military retreating. Um, uh, there were, of course, three casualties uh, during that coup. So I think that must have clearly left uh, an impression on him too. And we do know that President Putin is very concerned about the street, about the idea of, you know, a popular revolution. And then we also know that he said, obviously, uh, famously or infamously, uh, that the collapse of the Soviet Union was a great geopolitical catastrophe of the, 20, of the 20th century because it left so many Russians outside of their homeland. Um, and so he looks back on, on what happened, um, you know, then a, as a tragedy. Um, and I think the final thing I would say is um, I was um, a number of years ago at a, at a small gathering with him where he was asked about you know, what Gorbachev should have done. Should he have followed a Chinese model? And the answer was definitely, and I think he said this in public too, uh, that what Gorbachev should have done was to focus on economic reforms first, as the Chinese had done, and not to unleash um, glasnost uh, and, and the, you know, encourage people to criticize everything. Greater, greater political liberalization should have taken a back seat to economic reform. So I think all of that um, you know, all of those issues were, were there. And I think what happened in 1991 did make an impression on him. Yeah. I mean, Igor, do, do you agree with that as a, as a summary of, um, you know, what, what impact these events had on Putin's thinking? Um, you know, in, in particular, is the, has this been um, an important factor in the way that that Putin deals with any potential challenge to, to his authority? Uh, there were lessons learned by Mr. Putin, uh, but still, I think in his administration as of today, two trends are, uh, are represented. Neo-Stalinists who would say down with this democracy and uh, Russia is a besieged fortress and we should fight uh, uh, capitalists and, uh, and uh, join ranks with the Communist Party of, the, of China and, uh, and so on and so forth, being rich people, by the way, themselves. And uh, another, another group of people who understand that economically uh, you cannot go back. So he learned his lessons. Uh, he was a droid uh, operative of, of the organization which trained uh, adroit operators. He saw what happened in, in Dresden, definitely, and uh, uh, that was a lesson to him. So at the moment, I think he looks for more order uh, than law. Uh, the, but I hope that these two parties within Kremlin, liberals and conservatives, they still have some dynamic influence upon him, uh, and he understands that complete freeze of uh, uh, the uh, political process in Russia will bring him to the same result as Mr. Gorbachev received. Gorbachev, of course, our King Lear in, in many ways, and uh, that was a tragic uh, uh, definition which Putin would, would, uh, would like to avoid by, by any means. But uh, to look out, uh, to look for the, for the, for the re uh, resolution, for the solution of this crisis, I hope that he would he would have enough of uh, of wisdom and advice inside his own entourage that uh, there should be uh, uh, an evolution 
uh, and not only uh, a stability which, which of which he's so proud. Mm. Yes, although, you know, since he's now given himself the possibility of uh, uh, a couple more um, presidential terms, um, he clearly still puts a very high price on uh, not too much change at the top. Yeah, we, we wrote with you a book which was called The Last Term of Putin, remember? It was yeah. presented by the CR, and uh, conditionally we said that probably it's not the last term. And uh, we were right from, from, from the point of this prediction. Uh, at the moment, it's not only Putin. I think that the whole elite, which hasn't been changed for 30 years, uh, is very much worried about its future. Yeah. And there are people who this, this, who started as 100% Democrats, 100% marketeers, free marketeers, and all of that stuff. Now, as a bastion around him, uh, very much worried what will happen if, God forbid, he steps down, because they didn't prepare for the institutional change. So mm. now this is the question for people with some uh, intellect up in his and with, with some experience to invent and reinvent how this change could be uh, non-confrontational. Yeah, yeah. Angela, let me let me go back a bit to the um, the period after um, Gorbachev had stepped down, the Soviet Union had ceased to exist, Yeltsin was firmly in control of, of the Russian Federation, an independent Russian Federation, and, and the other um, former Soviet republics were also independent countries. I mean, as long as Gorbachev was um, president of the Soviet Union, most Western leaders had been quite careful in the language that they used to make it sound as though, you know, we were ending the Cold War in partnership. Once the Soviet Union dissolved, George Bush stood up at his 1992 State of the Union and, um, you know, he said, America won the, the Cold War. By the grace of God, America won the Cold War. Um, now, you know, was that sort of triumphalist feeling something that was was widely shared? And did anybody stop to ask themselves, um, well, you know, did we win the Cold War? Or did the Russian people win the Cold War? Or... Did Boris Yeltsin win the Cold War or, you know, or did everybody basically say, yeah, well, you know, the Cold War's over, the West has won and that's that? Well, I think you're right to point out that at the time, both in 1989, when the war came down and at the end of 1991, actually, George H.W. Um, Bush was quite careful in what he said. And he said, you know, I don't want them to see me dancing on the wall. So he was he was very careful. As you say, in the State of the Union speech, that was more uh, triumphalist. <laughs> um, so I would say that, you know, that the, the country was divided. I mean, among those who really focus on foreign policy, I think, uh, you know, a significant number of people understood that both the Soviet Union and the United States won the Cold War, if you like. And obviously, without Gorbachev, the Cold War wouldn't have ended. Um, it's not something, you know, clearly that the U.S. could have ended on its own. Um, I think maybe in the popular mind, this idea, well, we won the Cold War, you know, had um, uh, some resonance there. Um, and probably it was a mistake uh, to, to be too triumphalist, although, um, you know, the, as I said, there were a number of people around uh, President Bush who, who didn't really make those kinds of statements. Um, and then I think 
sort of go, you know, once Bill Clinton came in, um, the view was very different then because what Clinton wanted to do was to work with President Yeltsin um, and, you know, in a, you know in, um, in a maximum of eight years, which is what any American president has, you know, work to really transform uh, the Russia um, into something different. Now, you know, we can talk about mistakes that were made uh, and what might have been done, done better. But I think by that point, uh, by the time you have Clinton coming in, the sort of triumphalism really isn't there anymore. And it's much more, you know, uh, a conviction that somehow Russia could be helped uh, along its way to become much more integrated into the West. Now, again, I think with hindsight, uh, that was a naive view, but that was certainly the, the view once Clinton came in. Yeah, I mean, I, I was posted to Moscow in 1993, and that was very much the ethos was, you know, that we, and indeed it was the ethos on both sides, you know, when I went to see people in the Russian foreign ministry, they talked about, you know, Russia becoming a normal country. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, the embassy saw its role as helping Russia to become a normal country, however you define normal. But, um, I mean, Igor, you know what 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 impact did the the re the western rhetoric of the time have on on people in russia and um you know did um did russians feel that the west was trying to help or the rest the west was trying to to reduce um russia's status i mean i think you know putin clearly tries to portray the West as, as always trying to um, to humiliate Russia. Certainly, I don't think that's the way that Western statesmen felt they were behaving in the in the early 1990s. But how were how were they received? What were how were the things that they said received by Russians at that time? Again, there are two Russians from this point of view. One Russia uh, accepted 200, no, 20 odd billion dollars from International Monetary Fund, from EU, from World Bank uh, with pleasure and started uh, reconstructing what they could reconstruct. Uh, but there was a, a silent big Russia which, uh, which thought of itself as a winner of the Second World War, uh, which all, all of a sudden was the loser of, of the Third Cold War. So there were two Russians and two reactions. Uh, and then the Russians who accepted with pleasure and with, uh, with knowledge uh, the IMF loans and, and all of that, they accepted also uh, Jeffrey Sachs and, and, and other people who, who made some advice on the restructuring of the Russian economy. Uh, for, for other people, it was the, the, those were the carpet beggars who robbed their country from, from, from its wealth. It, it depended on whose Russia you were talking at that moment. Uh, the, uh, Boris Yeltsin managed to keep it under the control until 1993. But in 1993, the second Russia revolted. And Mr. Hasbulat of Rutskoy and others, uh, vice president again, uh, revolted against Yeltsin and Yeltsin ordered the tanks to, uh, to fire at, at, at the White House. That was, that was the third coup, if you wish of the second Russia against the first Russia. And we're still in the same parameters. There are still one Russia which want to be the, 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 the sort of a European 
developed uh, uh, economy, uh, free market, democracy, etc., etc. But the silent majority, and not so silent anymore, uh, wants to be a, a mother imperial Russia for all the people around it. Uh, and together with the uh, communist friend China, uh, win a fourth Cold War or, or, or a new one. Uh, that's, that's so obvious out in the streets. Uh, and if you talk to the young people, they are a very, very funny mixture. They want to be Bohemian, cosmopolitan, and, and cafe goers uh, uh, like Londoners. But when you start talking with them about patriotism, they are already brainwashed that we should kick so and so out of those uh, Westerners. You see what I mean? So uh, we're a very mixed bag at the moment. And uh, that's why I still insist that cons cons uh, reactionaries or conservatives and liberals, they they're still fighting for the number one person uh, with whom the final decision at the moment uh, is. Yeah, yeah. Okay, well, that's very, very interesting. Um notes and uh, I mean from my perspective I have a view on which side I hope wins. <laughs> uh, pre perhaps finally I, I might ask you both how if at all you think these events of 30 years ago um, are, are remembered. Um, I mean Igor one of the things that, that struck me even back in the sort of mid-90s um, was that the three people who lost their lives um, resisting the coup were, you know, they, they quite quickly passed into obscurity. Um, and later I was able to contrast this with the fact that, you know, in Latvia, you had five people who were killed defending the barricades um, against Soviet attempts to suppress uh, Latvian independence. Um, and they are still remembered with parades in January. Um, and, you know, they're seen as sort of national heroes, um, regardless of their ethnicity. And some of them were ethnic Russians. Um, but, you know, do people remember those three casualties? Do they look back on the, on the coup as, um, you know, an important stage in Russia's transition to democracy? Or is it a more ambiguous legacy? Do they do they have a you know more mixed feelings about whether these people died for anything that was worth dying for? I would say that the latter is uh, more to the point than than uh, than uh, you know um, the glorification. Uh, I would say that the monument is still there on nowhere, but but nobody remembers the names and nobody's laying the wreaths. And, and so on and so forth. So for Russia, number one, which is 30% or even less, Gorbachev is a hero and a man who gave them freedom. Uh, for 70%, he's a traitor, very weak person who brought the country to a collapse. And uh, that persists. The, this internal civil war goes on. Uh, I, I only hope that it will not be uh, a, a more serious confrontation. And I hope that we will find a peaceful resolution to all of this. But I'm not so sure. I'm not so sure because uh, at the moment, uh, economic, political, uh, military, and all other prerequisites are more on the side of confrontation than uh, cooperation and competition. Mm. 
Oh, that's a, a pessimistic note. I mean, Angela, do you think you can, can you, can you say anything more cheerful about, uh, about where we stand um, now, 30 years after, uh, after these events? Or, or is it actually fair to say that, uh, you know, 1991 was in a sense um, a, a prelude to failure and that, uh, you know, relations are worse now than they were with the Soviet Union prior to the coup? So just a few things. Um, a number of years ago, I was teaching at the Moscow State Institute of International Relations. And these are sort of sophisticated young people. Um, most of them, had, you know, they traveled uh, to the West and everything. And not one of my students could understand how the Soviet Union could have collapsed. So I come back to the question, if you look at the events of 1991, so you include the coup and then the collapse, it's very hard, particularly for younger people, um, and for people who were around at the time to understand how a nuclear superpower, um, you know, equal militarily to the United States that bestrode the, uh, the globe, how a country like that could have imploded. It wasn't defeated in a war. It died, if you like, of its own self-inflicted wounds. And therefore, um, the, the, in, in the natural way of dealing with this in many ways, and it's reinforced obviously by the narratives that we've heard from President Putin and the people around him is to blame outside forces, in this case, the United States, its special services, maybe the Germans, that they were somehow responsible for the Soviet collapse. And so you, that theme has been underlying the narrative ever since the Soviet Union collapsed, that somehow um, Russia was this great power and was destroyed by these sinister outside forces. And unfortunately, this kind of narrative has grown stronger and stronger in recent years. Uh, and the West is blamed sort of for, for all of the ills, the United States and European Union um, that are happening there. So we are at a, uh, the relationship clearly uh, between Russia and the West, I mean, the European Union and the United States, uh, those relations are, are worse than they've been at any time, I would say since before Gorbachev came to power. We've I mean, the good thing in the, in the Biden administration, at least you've had uh, a meeting uh, between President Putin and President Biden. There is some commitment to working together on some issues, particularly those that have to do with strategic stability and nuclear weapons. Um, but, you know, the underlying tensions are still there. So I would say that toward the end of the Gorbachev period, the relationship between the, the Soviet Union and the West um, was better than it was now, much better. Um, I would also say that for the Russian people, um, you know, at the end of the Gorbachev administration, they certainly had more freedom than they do now. Um, and so, um, you know, one tries to be optimistic and one tries to hope that the 30% of the people that Igor has been talking about will still have uh, an influence on, on the future course of relations. Um, but I think it's, it's difficult at this point uh, to be very optimistic about things improving. Um, and, and so I think what we'll continue to see a situation where the relationship will be antagonistic, but at least there will be attempts to, you know, prevent it from becoming more antagonistic and maybe uh, the ability to find some areas uh, where we can work together uh, with Russia going forward. Mm. Okay, well, thank you for doing your best to inject a, a note of optimism at the end there. That's, that's really helpful. Um, I, I mean, I think that's, that's all we've got time for, really, unfortunately. I could go on discussing this uh, all, all, uh, all day, really. But 
I, I mean, it, it does seem to me that um, we in the West certainly still need to, to study the history, both positive and negative, of the last 30 years and work out what we could do better if um, a similar situation ever arose anywhere, whether in Russia or, or elsewhere. Um, I mean, one of the things that strikes me about the the period in 1991, around the time of the coup, was that because um, we basically thought that the collapse of the Soviet Union was unimaginable, we had no contingency plans for it. Um, and that both um, delayed our responses and meant that we, I think, often went down, down blind alleys. Um, so, you know, hopefully one lesson we can learn from this is um, to keep studying the history and um, trying to work out where we went wrong the first time. Anyway, thank you to, to both my guests. You've been absolutely terrific on this, and I've certainly learned a lot and been reminded of a lot that I had forgotten. Thank you to Igor Jurgens and Angela Stent. Thank you to those of you who have listened to this. Please subscribe to our podcast wherever you usually listen to your podcasts and leave us a review if you can. And uh, can I say to all our listeners and to Igor and Angela, uh, enjoy the rest of your summer and goodbye. Thank you. Thank you very Thank you. much. Thank you for listening to the CEA podcast. If you have any feedback for us or want to leave suggestions for a future episode, then you can find us on Twitter at CER underscore EU.